Hey, can you guys give a hand to the band really quick? Weren't they awesome? They sound great. Especially that Dom guy. He's got such a great voice. He's so sweet. He's my boss. I'm trying to get a raise, but that's all right. Anyway, hey guys, my name is Tim. Uh, I'm the junior high pastor here. I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. This is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, I want to share with y'all a story of when I almost, almost got this close to having a really cool injury. And for guys, having really cool injuries is kind of like the spice of life, okay? So about two years ago, I was hanging Christmas lights at my parents' house in Dallas. We were there. We, how many of you guys are before Thanksgiving Christmas lightsers? I just need to know so that we can ostracize you. Sorry, Lori. I'm um, just kidding. How many of you guys are like only for December Christmas lights, please? Only December? Okay, I see you. We wait until the day after Thanksgiving, and so we're up hanging up lights, and because it's Texas, it's like 90 degrees praise God. And we're, we're wrapping lights around this massive bush and we're passing my dad and I lights in between the bush to one another. So I'm reaching my hand deep in the bush to give it to him. He's reaching it deep in the bush to give it to me. And so we're passing it through and all of a sudden my arm goes over something furry, which is a very weird feeling when you're not expecting it. Like not petting a dog. Like I was like, we have a dog, my sister maybe here. I don't, I don't know what's going on. So we're rolling through and I touch something furry and I look in the bush and I see this in the bush, and I don't know what that is. It's a toupee, a part of my sister's hair. I don't know what it is. And so we just keep on going. But then all of a sudden, my arm, where I've touched this furry thing, begins to hurt, like, a lot. Like, not just a little bit, but, like, like a lot. And I've got an okay tolerance for pain. I'm kind of a baby when it comes to spicy food. But for pain, I can do it. And it started to hurt a lot. And I was like, okay, it hurts worse than a bee sting now. I've been stung by a hornet. It's starting to hurt worse than that. And I, and I look down, and I've got these spines hanging out of my arm. And I'm wondering, what in the world did I just touch? It's so strange. It doesn't make any sense because the venom of whatever this thing is is starting to go through my body. And not only is it going through my body, it's starting to go through like my nervous system. You can kind of feel your nerves start to come alive. And then it goes down my armpit. Did you guys think we we're going to get this intimate today? It went down my armpit and it starts going towards like that vital organ area. And I start to get really worried at this point. I'm like terrified. I'm like, I think I'm going to have a heart attack and die from whatever this fuzzy thing is. Like, I don't know what's going on. And so I go inside and my wife is sitting inside. And I, and, and by the way, ladies, doesn't matter how long you're married. Your guy always wants to seem really tough in front of you. So I'm like trying not to cry, even though like my arm is convulsing. I'm like, hey, can you come out and check this thing out with me? I'm awesome and tough, but can you come and see, you know, it hurts just a little bit. And we go out, we consult Dr. Google. And I, I remember I'm like sitting on the ground and at this point I like can't stand. Like I'm just like, it's like, it's just rolling through my body. And I go and I look at her and I go, okay, I want to know what it is. But first I want to be able to have a cool story. Like, like, am I going to, like, if I have to go through this, I want to be able to say that something cool happened. And she goes, well, you're going to get about half of that. And I was like, oh, uh oh, because here's what she says. She goes, well, the first half of it is you got stung by the most poisonous one of these in the United States. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, who gets stung by the most poisonous kind of anything anywhere? That's awesome, right? And so I'm really excited. And I go, okay, cool. That's awesome. Now, what is it? And she goes, well, it's a, and she's trying to be delicate. She's trying to be gentle with me. She goes, it's a caterpillar. <laughs> and I was like, the thing that turns into a beautiful butterfly, you know, like that. And she's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's still pretty venomous. She was trying to make me feel better. But I remember that the pain went through my body for the next like two hours. I mean, it was just intense. And I read up on these later and apparently they do actually hurt. So I did feel a little validated. But I remember experiencing for the first time in my life, venom going through my body and how it started started as something little. In fact, at the moment of contact, it didn't actually cause that much damage. But then over time, the damage started to get greater and greater to the point where I was debilitated sitting on the couch, unable to move. Well, friends, there's a poison that we're going to read about in Acts chapter 8 that has infiltrated the church over the last 2,000 years. 
And at the very onset, it seems really harmless, but I've watched as this poison has taken my own faith down several times, has taken my friend's faith down several times, and I think there's a lot of us in this room that are probably dealing with this kind of venom right now. And so I want to encourage you and and ask you to open your Bibles up with me to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, because I think that there is a venom that we need to see, because Satan is coming after the church in a real way in this way. And I want to encourage you that God gives us hope in the midst of this, but it's still something that we need to recognize and turn from. But as we do that, would you pray with me uh, as we bless this time? God, thank you so much for this time together, for everyone here. God, you've brought everybody here from far walks of life. God, you've brought people from all over the place. So Jesus, today, I pray that you would just minister to all of us here, God. Minister to my heart, minister to my friends' hearts. And Jesus, what I pray is that you would speak through me, because God, if you say it, it's going to be incredible and life-changing. If I say it, it probably won't be. So God, we're thankful for you. All glory goes to you. And Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Inside people, you guys doing good? You guys doing good? Outside people, how you guys doing? You guys doing all right? Online people, be sure to say hi in the comments. We got the illustrious Matt Carlson back in the back for you responding, so that's always a good thing. Um, Let's jump into Acts chapter 8, verse 9. A little background to where we are right now. Chapters 1 through 10, as Ryan talked about last week, we are in the great expansion of the church. Acts 1 through 7, we have the Jerusalem and Judea being reached, and now, with the persecution that Saul has brought about, Philip, this great disciple of Jesus, has gone to Samaria. Now, if you remember from last week, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. In fact, it's fair to say that there was a big wall of prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. We could even call it racism today. Jews hated Samaritans because they were Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews because they were Jews. That's just how it was. People didn't cross over that line. But when Saul started to persecute the church, here's what Philip asked. And I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Let's put it up on the screen here. How do I serve God's interests? How do I serve God's interests? And Philip, I mean, we don't know if he was prejudicing at Samarians, but he, we do know that he grew up around that prejudice, goes into and walks into a space where he would have been very, very uncomfortable. And he's going to meet a man in this passage named Simon, who is going to almost be his foil, his opposite. The opposite of him is going to be this Simon, the sorcerer. Let's jump into this passage, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Now, For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and that all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. Yikes. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, if you're newer to church or if you're around my age, you may read sorcery and go, what in the world are you talking about? Like Harry Potter, David Blaine sorcery? Like, what are we talking about here? Well, back in the day, and in fact, still in the East today, in the Eastern countries of the world, spirituality is a thing. And we do believe that God is the greatest spiritual power on earth, and we, we access his power through the Holy Spirit. But we also believe on the flip side that Satan does have power as well. And there are people that tap into that power, and that's what Simon is doing. In fact, in the West, if I were to go around the street asking about demon possession or who can do mighty spiritual works, people would probably look at me like I'm a little crazy. But if you go to the East, where I was in Cambodia and I was 17, we would ask people and say, hey, so where do the spiritual healings, where do the spiritual, like, demonic things happen? And they go, oh, three doors down at Greg's house down there. Like, every neighborhood has one. It's just kind of assumed at that point that that's what happens. And that's the same thing that's happening here. Spiritual warfare, Simon is on the side of Satan. He's tapping into his power, and people are calling him great because of it. He's deceiving people and saying, I am awesome. I'm incredible. Look at me. Let's continue to go. 
But when they believed, that's the crowd, when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed, you can circle that word, it's really important, and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, Philip was a guy that himself performed miracles. He performed incredible things. He was able to conjure things out of air. He was able to heal people, probably. Simon was this incredible guy, yet he was astonished by what he saw. Guys, when I lived in Texas growing up, I used to go to Taco Bell and call that Mexican food. Can anybody laugh at me for just a second? I went to Taco Bell and thought it was Mexican food. And then I came here to San Diego, and you guys introduced me to this place called Cotijan right over there in El Camino Real. And I had that green salsa, and I went, oh, This is real Mexican food. Like, Taco Bell doesn't even hold a candle to this in a very odd way. (laughs) You see the connection here? I'm sorry. Simon is working with Satan's power, and it is so much less potent and incredible than God's power. He sees the Holy Spirit. He experiences the Holy Spirit, and he recognizes the power that the Holy Spirit has. Now, that word in the Greek, believed, is not the word for saving faith. It's the word for recognizing faith. Pisteo is the word in Greek, and it means that Simon recognized, and he's like, oh, I believe there's something here. It's the same word in James, where James looks at his disciples and says, faith is not alone. Recognizing God alone is not enough. He says, even the demons have pisteo, faith, and they're not saved. There's something about surrendering your life to Jesus. That's the saving faith that we place. Does that make sense, the difference between recognizing faith and saving faith? Okay, so he's got the recognizing faith, and we're going to see in his heart how that changes things. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a theological sidebar for 14 through 18, because I think it's really, really important And then we're going to get back to Simon, okay? So let's jump to verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Which is a weird thing if you think about it. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even a weirder statement. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what this naturally did to me when I read this passage, what it made me think, wait, so when I'm saved, do I need to, like, have someone lay their hands on me and receive the Holy Spirit? Because I've been taught, and I've read in the Bible, that as soon as you're saved, the Spirit indwells you, and you have his power, and it's incredible. Like, from the moment you surrender to Jesus, you're saved. And, like, right? We all kind of believe that, I would think. Well, so why is this happening in this passage? Does this mean that if I get saved, I need to have a pastor come and lay his hands on me and receive the Holy Spirit? There would be some people in the church that would say yes to that. I choose, I don't believe that that's true. It's it's an issue that we can disagree on, but here's what I think is happening. And I want you to write this down. The book of Acts contained a series of significant, era-specific moments to teach a lesson to the church. Specific, era-specific moments to teach a lesson to the church. Now, this significant moment here is is due to the fact that there was this wall of prejudice that I talked about between the Samaritans and the Jews. Okay, so my wife and I have two kids under three years old, okay? Any, any of you parents remember having two kids under three years old? We, we, we're always with the kids. We're doing that. So we had them at Grandma's house on Friday. So I don't know if you guys remember dates whenever you guys go out when you have young kids. Uh, you talk about everything because that's the only time you really have to talk, right? You're going to sleep at 7 o'clock, waking up with the kids do. And so we're driving up and down the 101 freeway, and we are, we first we talk about our marriage, then we talk about football, then we talk about poisonous caterpillars. We're talking about everything. And at one point, like, we get into deep philosophical territory. You only get this when you've had kids with you all week, and then you get a moment to yourselves. Like, we are in deep philosophical territory. And I said, Megan, babe, what do you think, like, where do we believe the value of a person comes from? 
Like, how do, how do we determine value? Doesn't that sound like something like a young parent talks about when they're sleep deprived? Like, where does value come from? Well, in our culture, we would say that value comes from the amount of money you have, the amount of power that you have, the position that you have, how popular you have, how many followers you have. That's your value, right? But where does Jesus, how do we know that Jesus calls us valuable? Because I know that all of us are valuable. And I remember answering it. I remember thinking to myself, I was like, well, you know, right now, if into the, if into the car lot, right now drove a Ferrari. Anybody car people here? I got any car people in the house? If a Ferrari 458 drove into the, into the parking lot, all of us car people guys would go around and be like, ooh, right? Like cherry red, beautiful car. Why? Because it's valuable because someone placed a large deposit on that car. They placed a lot of money and they defined its value as being great. We can determine the value of something by how much someone is willing to pay for it, by how, by how much someone is willing to spend for it. Guys, the reason that you are valuable is because Jesus was willing to lay down his life for you. Whether you believe in him or not, you have inherent value. And here's what Peter and John are trying to show. They, as Jews from Jerusalem, are trying to go to Samaria to lay to rest any sort of rumor that the Samaritans have less value than them. There is no place, and here's what they're trying to teach, there is no place for prejudice in God's church. Because the same Holy Spirit that indwells the Jews indwelt the Samaritans. The Samaritans, the Jews could have gone, well, those Samaritans don't have the Holy Spirit like we do. We can't know necessarily that they're as valuable as us. But the Jews have immense value because of what Jesus did for them. And the Samaritans do as well. There is no place for prejudice in the church. And I know this sounds like a buzzword. And I know we can talk about racism and critical race theory and all that stuff. But here's what I want to talk about just right now. If I could take a little side moment here. I've been so heartbroken in my own life as I've watched this happen to me. I've been heartbroken as I've watched this happen around me, where I think the biggest prejudice that exists in our world today may not even be racial prejudice. It might be political prejudice, that we group people together based on what they believe and say, all of those people are just less than me. They're evil. Maybe if you're on the right, you look at the left and go, I can't believe what they believe. They must all be terrible and debased and awful. And the left does the same thing to the right, I've noticed, across the aisle where they say, gosh, this whole group of Republicans or whatever you call them, they are terrible. And I've watched this president infiltrate the church. And friends, if I could just take a little soapbox moment and say this, every single person has value in Christ, so they're all worth a conversation. And to love them, we can disagree, but to have loving disagreement is something I want to see more of in the church. Can we get an amen to that? Let's keep on going. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to Simon. Now, what Simon has seen based on this moment is not only is the Holy Spirit powerful, but the Holy Spirit has the ability to unify. And when the Holy Spirit comes on people, then people are able to perform these incredible, powerful things that the Holy Spirit's able to perform. So he sees a three-peat, and we start to see Simon's heart, and this is where that venom that I talked about begins to really show itself. Watch this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands, he offered them money, and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Now, this seems really harsh. Like, when I first read this passage, I'm like, dude, Peter, chill out, man. Like, this guy's a new believer. He's trying to figure this out. Why are you going after him? And Peter, you're the dude that when Jesus was alive, you put your foot in your mouth all the dang time. Why are you being so harsh to Simon? Let's go back to verse 18 real fast. Let's, let's really check this out. Because remember, this is in front of all these new believers. Simon does not have a saving faith. The poison in Simon's heart is there. And I want you to watch. 
In fact, if you can think about it, let's, let's remember the times, friends, when maybe you're dating somebody or maybe you get to know somebody. They say something a little bit weird at first, and you're like, oh, that's nothing. But then six months down the road, you go, oh, no, that was a heart thing, y'all. <laughs> that was a heart thing. Watch the heart thing here. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, let me tell you what Simon's big venom is that I think still affects the church and affects me to this day. The poison manifested in Simon is a my throne faith. Write that down, a my throne faith. Let me tell you something, friends. Every single one of us in our lives has a throne. We all have a throne. And before Christ, we are on that throne. Or maybe power is on that throne. Or maybe money's on that throne. The thing that we serve, that we hold highest above all other things, the thing that we submit to is on that throne. Secondly, not only is there a throne that we submit to, there are subjects, there are the things that serve the throne. For some of us, if money's on the throne, we're the subject. We're serving money. For Simon, he was on the throne. He was the great one. He called himself great. He was the great power of God. Simon is on the throne. And so, and so who's supposed to serve him? Everybody else. All the money, all the power, it serves Simon because he's on the throne. Here's what Simon's trying to do. He's trying to say, listen, there's this moment on the throne. Well, let me go back. Before Christ, we're on the throne. Money's on the throne, whatever's on the throne. But then Jesus comes in and changes the paradigm. Guys, the gospel of Jesus is that we were dead in our sin, and then Jesus comes and makes us alive. And not only that, he doesn't just come as a savior and a good teacher. He doesn't just come as God. He comes as the king. And when he says, you lay your life down and submit your life before me, you repent and live for me, we put him on the throne. That's the deal. We put him on the throne. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good guy. He's the king. So we put Jesus on the throne. And Simon is saying, no, 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 I'm on the throne. It's me. I'm on the throne. Now, Jesus is trying to say, listen, I am the king. He's a good king, friends. He offers hope. He offers blessing. All the fruits of the Spirit, that's what our king offers us. But Simon is trying to say, listen, let me have a transaction with you. Right? It's not on the screen, but I want you to write this down. A God's throne faith produces disciples. A God's on the throne faith, it produces disciples. A my throne faith produces investors. Write that down. It's very important. Investors. That may not be the word you thought. It doesn't sound like a very spiritual word, but it's very, very potent here. The word investors. I had a friend to me come to me. She's, she went to college with me, and she reached out on Facebook. Has anybody else had this moment? I hope you'd have. She reached out on Facebook. She said, Tim, I'm selling these supplements. Okay? I'm selling these supplements. Tim, why are all my friends getting into pyramid schemes, guys? I don't understand what's going on. She said, Tim, I'm selling supplements. If you invest a good amount of money into my business, I will probably return that to you. Probably. Maybe. I will maybe return that to you at a greater sum. If you put money into my supplement business, it's going to return a greater sum. And I was like, how do you, how do you turn down a person for a pyramid scheme, by the way? I try to be polite. But anyway, but I remember I looked at that and I said, wow, what an investment strategy. I'm going to put something good in and then I expect something in return. That's what a basic investment is. Investments aren't bad. It's a great way to spend money. We all know that. It's great to put money in and try to get something out of it. But faith doesn't work that way. But Simon thinks it does. Did you notice he said, let me give you money and I'm going to get the power in return. Let me give you something only if I get something in return for it, Jesus. It's dangerous, and it's everywhere in our faith today. It's everywhere. Watch this. Philip versus Simon. I want to ask you this. There's a couple things about, them, about Philip and Simon because they work opposite. Philip has a God's throne faith. Simon has a my throne faith. I want to ask, which of the faiths are you experiencing today? What's your family members experiencing today? Do you believe you have an investment faith saying that, hey, I wanna, I'll only get if I give? Or I'll only give if I get? Or do you have a God's on the throne faith? 
Here's the venom, friends. Philip says this, how can I advance God's interests? Simon says, how can God advance my interests? How can God advance my interests? Philip has a relationship with God that is a relationship of submission. What can I do for you? When you call me, I answer. I run after you. I chase you. I go. When Simon has a relationship of transactions, God, I'll live for you. I'll give you money. Giving money is not a bad thing. I'll give you money, but only if I get blessing in return. I'll live for you only if I get the blessing. I'll go to church only if I get the peace in my household. It's a relationship of transactions. This is the biggest one, and if you want to write something down, write this one. Philip works from blessing. Simon works for blessing. When he lives for Jesus, he works from blessing. That's Philip. He realizes that he has been blessed with Jesus, that he's been given hope, he's been given joy, so he is a disciple of Christ. But Simon works for blessing. He says, listen, I'll give money, but only if I get something in return. And Peter cuts him right to the quick. This is why Peter says there is wickedness in his heart because he says, listen, you're working for God's blessing as opposed to working from it. God's a good king. He's going to bless for sure. But we don't do this faith thing out of transactions. We don't do this faith thing out of transactions. Why is this so serious? I'm like harping on this quite a bit, right? What's going on? Why am I like so nervous about this? Well, because I've seen two things happen in the church when it becomes a transactional faith, when it becomes a faith like that. First one is disobedience. When it comes to investment faith, I want you to imagine that your faith is an investment. I've watched as my friends say, okay, I'll invest some of my time. I'll go to church. I'll invest some of my time even more. I'll pray a little bit. But then there are those things that God asks us to do or not do that become way too big of an investment for me. And any of you guys that are into stock market investing, you know you don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? If you're an investor, you got to make sure that you diversify. So people go, hey, I'm willing to put some investment in, but at some point God's going to ask me to do something where I go, ah, I don't know. Imagine if Philip had this idea. He would, God says, go to Samaria. And Philip goes, no, I don't like those guys. Too big of an investment. Can I make it a little bit more real for my age people and maybe a little bit younger? God says in the Bible, he says, listen, sex is designed for marriage, not outside of it. And we go, and I, I've had teenagers come to me, and I've had friends come to me. I've come to myself even and said, uh, that may be too big of an investment for me. I really like that. Like, I really like that, and I, I, don't, I don't really know. I'll go to church, I'll pray, but that's too big of an investment for me, Jesus. That's what investment faith does, where a submissive faith says, you know what, God, you said it, I got it. You're king, I'll do it. Second thing, and more dangerous even, this is what I've noticed in my life and the life of people around me, is desertion. When there's no longer enough value for me, I run away from it. I remember when I was 14 years old, I picked up the guitar for the first time. And, and, and I picked up the guitar for a couple of reasons. I thought it was a really good investment. I spent some birthday money. I saved up Christmas money. I saved up work money. And I bought a guitar for a couple of reasons. One, girls like guys that plays guitars, right? Two, I was able to write great songs and be creative. Three, girls really like guys that play guitar. Four, I was able to worship God. But five, Girls really like guys that play guitar. And so I remember thinking, I'm going to get this. I played clarinet. I, I was not a cool guy. I was like, this is going to turn my fortunes around. And I learned that girls only like guys that play guitar when they can play Wonderwall. And that takes a little while to get to, okay? And so I remember that over time, I, my fingers started getting cut up. I had to invest time and energy into this guitar thing. And I began to realize, whoa, this investment's got a lot of bumps along the road. And I don't know if I'm willing to be that invested for that long. Same thing happens in our faith. And I put the guitar away, by the way, under my bed. And I've watched as my friends who have had investment-style faith say, you know what, God, I want you to bring me the hope and the peace and the joy and all that stuff that you say. But when you say that I have to obey you, when you say that I have to live for you, or even worse, when things start to get a little bit rough, when I don't get everything that I want, I start to pull my investment out. And I've noticed that Christians a lot of the, along, along the way in my life and probably along the way in your life have deserted God 
because their life got hard and they didn't want to invest anymore. So how do we get past this? The reality is, guys, we already owe Jesus everything for what he did for us on the cross. So what's the antidote to the poison? What is it? Write it down. The antidote is submission. Not a fun word, but it's the antidote. The antidote is looking at God going, hey, Jesus, you're on the throne. I'm not. So whatever you need me to do, I got you. I'll follow you. I'll run after you with everything that I have. I will submit to you. How do we submit? There's two places. First of all, I want you to daily ask God the hardest question I think you can ask, which is, hey, God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do? And I want you to go first to God's word. He's given us this incredible Bible full of things where he's saying, I want you to do this, or I want you not to do this. I want you to start this, stop this, continue this. Go to God's word. Go to God's word first. Second of all, a great place to go. Go to your life group. Go to people that are surrounded by you. Did you notice in this story that it took someone calling Simon out for him to become close to repenting? Some of you guys need to jump together, whether it be a life group, friendships, whatever it may be. You need to jump into some, in a community of people that are able to call you out. I had this happen to me this last week with one of my very close friends on staff here. He said, hey, Tim, there's been some things that you've been doing here in the office that show that you're not really all here all the time. There's some things that you're doing that's showing that your faith isn't good. And we had such an amazing conversation. And I go around and I repent to people. And man, what a, what a beautiful picture of what God's church is supposed to be. That's what we're called to do. We're called to do that. We're called to say, where are my marching orders, Jesus? You're my king. Let me go get it from your word. Let me go get it from people that I trust. But then let's follow it. Guys, in closing, and I'll invite the band back up whenever they're ready. Uh, I became a student pastor for the money. Just kidding. I became a student pastor because there was something that happened to me right before my senior year of high school. I went to Hume Lake, which is where we're going this summer. It's going to be tons of fun. But I went to Hume Lake myself as a, as a you know, going into senior year of high school. And I remember that me and a couple of friends were sitting around one day, and we'd heard a talk like this. Jesus on the throne, I'm on the throne, like talking about the gospel, grace, all that stuff. And I remember that all of us just had this one thought. And it was a really cool God moment where he just said, if this is true, like genuinely, if this is true, then at some point we have to make a decision. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but at some point we have to decide, are we going to be disciples or are we going to be investors? We've got a choice to make here. And I remember that we said, listen, we've, we've had our high school fun, we've dated around, we've, we've partied, we've done all the you know, stupid stuff, whatever it may be. What if we used our senior year differently than everybody else does? What if we just went against the grain a little bit? And what if we just said, let's be disciples, the four of us, we'll try it out. And we've, we started this thing called sharpening where we'd go to the local park and we'd sit down and we'd read Proverbs together as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We would begin to say, hey, what does God want you to do this week? That was our only question. What do you, what do you think God wants you to do this week? And we'd all go around and it'd be a challenging thing. And if we didn't think it was challenging enough, we'd be like, are you sure that's the Lord or is that just your comfort? And we would start to be challenged to greater and greater things. Guys, can I tell you what happened to my senior year of high school? It was insane. I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Our youth group started at about 100 students. In our, in our high school group. By May, it was at 650 people. Not that numbers matter for significant sake, but because numbers matter for soul's sake. I mean, those, how many people were coming to know Jesus? In my high school, we were having drug dealers come. We were having people that were far from God come, first-generation Christians just come. Because all we did is four guys around a park bench said, hey, who do you think we should invite to church this week? How do you think we should be disciples this week? We were losing addictions. All of us going into that year were addicted to porn. We were losing that. We were getting rid of that. We were losing addictions. We were finding peace, joy, hope. Guys, I'm telling you, I believe that not only high schoolers and junior hires can do it. That's why I'm a youth pastor. I believe all of you can do it as well. You're never too old for Jesus to start being a disciple. Guys, my question to you is this. If God could grow a group with not a great room and 
from punks like me, if God could grow a group like that, what could he do with dedicated disciples in his church? What could he do with the millennial generation that rises up and says we're going to be disciples? What could he do with the Gen X generation that rises up and says we're going to be disciples? Baby boomers, what would happen if you guys started to set the example of what it meant to be disciples to us young people? What would happen? I don't know. But God knows, and it's a lot cooler than I bet you can imagine. Jesus says in Ephesians that, or Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus is able to do more, infinitely more than we can ask or even imagine. And I believe that happens when we decide to be disciples. He's waiting for it. He's, he's not going to try to prod us there. He's going to go, okay, I'm ready. I've been on the throne the whole time. You ready to come serve? What would happen? 2,000 years ago, 12 guys decided, I'm going to be a disciple. And now you're sitting here. It's pretty cool. It all comes back to discipleship. Move away from investment. It's not about, hey, Jesus, I'll, I'll take what you can give me once, or I'll take what, what I can get, and then I'll give. No, it's just, Lord, you called me. I'm going to submit. I'm going to go. What would happen? Move into the uncomfortable, friends. Move into a life that's different. Move into a life that's new. I believe God could fill this place up. We have to blow up this building and to build a new one because God builds it so fast. That's what I believe God can do, and it's not that hard for him. Let's be disciples together. Let me pray. Jesus, you've called us to discipleship, and it's a hard call. It's a lot easier to be an investor. When it's worth it, we're in. When it's not, we're out. That's safe. I pray for unsafe disciples in this room today. I pray for disciples that say, you know what? Even if my family doesn't follow, I'm going to go for it. Even if my friends don't follow, I'm going to go for it. What would happen? Would you even right now in this moment give a collective vision to us about what could be if even half the people in this room decided, yes, I'm going to be a disciple this week? Give us a collective vision right now. God, I see people coming to know you. I see, I see marriages restored. I see families made whole. I see people worshiping you, not because some celebrity pastor's on a stage, not because we have some incredible buildings, sound system, lights, we, but just because of you. Jesus, you're more than enough, and you're worth it. But now it's on your people. It's on your people. Do we decide to be disciples today? Do we walk out of this place changed, different, completely changed, or do we just go back to normal and invest our faith until we feel like it's not worth it? Now, Lord, to you who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine based on the discipleship, we give glory and honor and praise to you.